0: Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.
3: Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.
1: Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist to the Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political commentator for news radio stations WGN in Chicago and KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions and democrats bannoncr.com is the sponsor of today's show if you want to learn more about me and my political polling company or if you have any suggestions or ideas for deadline dc the best way to reach me is on twitter my twitter handle is brad bannon all one word welcome to all of you watching me on twitter or periscope now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Our guest in the first half hour today is John Nichols of The Nation. Uh, the publisher of DemList, Kimberly Scott, joins progressive activist Mark Grimaldi on the provocative progressive political panel in the second half hour. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, the national political res- correspondent for The Nation, home to tenacious, muckracking muckraking, provocative commentary, and spirited debate about politics and culture. The nation empowers readers to fight for justice and equality for all. John is also the author of a new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Brad, it's great to be with you. Well, thanks for being here, John. Uh, First of all, uh, there's uh, big news today. Uh, The Supreme Court in a Rather surprising, or at least it was surprising to me, six to four, six to three uh, uh, ruling uh, said that uh, gay and transgender people are protected, uh, their employment uh, is protected against discrimination by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This came as a surprise to many, and I'm sure a rude shock uh, to several, to many uh, Trump supporters.
4: Yeah, it's a huge decision. And What's really a big deal is the uh, grounding for it, the the legal argument that was made for it by, um, of all people, Neil Gorsuch, as well as uh, John Roberts, uh, the two conservatives who went over and sided with the liberals on the court. And, and that grounding is assen- essentially an argument that uh, discriminating against people because they are a member of a class because they are a member of a, of a certain group, you know, goes to the very heart of why we have civil rights laws or why we have anti-discrimination laws. And so they, in a sense, built out the definition in a way that, uh, frankly, I, I think really does move us dramatically as a country uh, in in the right direction, that's obviously showing my politics, but also into an understanding of discrimination that is much firmer uh, than perhaps it has been for many, you know, like in the last few years, because we've seen this game played by the right, where they've suggested that, um, oh, well, somebody who doesn't want to serve somebody else, somebody who doesn't want to treat someone else fairly, if you tell them they must treat that other person fairly, they're being discriminated against. Essentially what the court said here is it, don't play those games. The fact of the matter is we understand what discrimination is. Uh, it's when you treat somebody differently uh, because you don't like them or you don't like who they are as a as a member of a class. And so this is a big decision. It's, it's important. and um, And I think it really shows finally how far uh, this country has moved on this issue. We have so many issues that are unresolved, so many things that we have to work on. But this is really an example of of an issue that 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was rampant discrimination. There is still discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community. But um, there's clearly progress.
1: Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, uh, national correspondent for the nation. Uh, If you'd like to uh, talk to uh, John, you can call us at 888-6Leslie, or you can tweet him at Nichols Uprising. That's N-I-C-H-O-L-S Uprising. Uh last week uh, you wrote a piece for the nation on the uh, primary election in Georgia uh which was in some ways a god awful mess i remember reading about uh, one person who said they uh, waited uh, 7 hours in line to vote uh, tell us what happened in Georgia last week
4: well you are right it is a mess or was a mess um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution pretty well summed it up on the morning after the election. And, and Brad, you've been around a lot of elections. You've picked the paper up on the morning after a lot of times. Have you ever seen a headline that read, complete meltdown?
1: No, I can't say that I have. <laughs> but these the days, bad. nothing surprises me.
4: <laughs> You're right, but it's about as bad as you can get. And the fact of the matter is, it, they it seemed like everything went awry. Uh, now they had a high turnout, but that's an important thing to understand. They had a high turnout because people are desperate to vote. People are really engaged at a very high level. And there's a lot of reasons they have to vote. But those people who did turn out had to jump through incredible hoops. And frankly, we don't know how high, much higher it would have been if they'd done it right. And so understand this. They had polling places that weren't open on time. They had understaffed polling places. They had lines that that stretched you know, out the door and down the block. Uh, people did wait. Five, six, seven hours to vote. And it, as part of a historic challenge in Georgia and many other states, um, it, it was not even. It wasn't like everybody in the state had the hardest time voting. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of evidence that the, the worst circumstances were in overwhelmingly African American precincts. Uh, in fact, one observer of the election, Latasha Brown, who works with black voters? Black voters matter. Um, went from her precinct, right, out to the suburbs, and there were these long lines, all these barriers, all these challenges in an urban precinct where you had working-class African-American people, as predominantly the voters, go out to the suburbs. And suddenly, she said, "You saw people strolling in as if it was a, you know, a nice summer afternoon. Uh, no lines, no trouble at all." Now there were problems in some rural areas as well. So it's not simply African-Americans who ran into trouble. But the fact of the matter is it was disproportional and this has caused a real outcry among civil rights activists.
1: Now, uh, if you look at the national polls, uh, basically the polls show that uh, uh, real clear politics average has Joe Biden with an eight percent lead over Donald Trump, uh, which I think is encouraging. But uh, it seems to me that uh, across the country, uh, some election officials, uh, like in Georgia, uh, have uh, demonstrated uh, a capacity uh, for making sure a lot of people of color can't vote. And sometimes I wonder, I look at those national polls showing Biden with the big lead, and I wonder, well, how many of those people who were polled uh, won't vote or can't vote even if they want to? Uh, talk about the national implications of voter suppression.
4: That's a very good question. And, and Brad, as you know from looking at polling, uh, the reality is that national polls don't tell us much about a presidential race because it's state by state. It's where, you know, you can have a huge lead based on a lot of support in California and New York, but that doesn't necessarily put you over the top in Georgia or Wisconsin. And the reality is that voter suppression is a huge problem uh, across this country. We've seen tremendous amounts of evidence of it. And we're really getting alarm bells now uh, as we move toward the November election. In April in Wisconsin, there was a, a, a disastrous election where- You had um, the state, uh, the governor, called for a delay in voting. Republicans refused to participate in that or cooperate with that delay. They sued in court. They got the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court to back them up. And so people were forced to go and vote at a peak period in the coronavirus pandemic. They literally had to make a choice between uh, staying at home, staying safe, following the rules or going out and casting in-person ballots. The reason for that was because even people who had uh, called for or sought absentee ballots didn't get them, they didn't arrive in time. The, the system melted down. Fast forward to Georgia, again, we see another systemic meltdown where you have uh, absentee ballots not arriving, long lines, all the problems there. And And so clearly there's a challenge. Now you could say, oh, well, it's just, it's just the pandemic, right? It's just the, this hard moment in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, while Wisconsin pressed forward with an election that should not have been held as rapidly as it was, Georgia had two delays.
1: They had plenty of time. Uh, John, I'm gonna have to interrupt you because we're going to break now. But uh, we come back for our audio listeners. We'll have more John Nichols from The Nation. And for our video listeners on Twitter, we will continue the conversation. Our guest in the Mother, staff
3: office,
1: John. Mother,
3: there's too many uh,
1: John has recently released a new book, uh, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Uh, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, John. It's an honor to be with you, Brad. Uh, let's try this. Uh, what kind of uh, efforts do you think uh, Joe Biden has made to reach out to Bernie Sanders supporters. You know, it's my impression that the relationship between Biden and Sanders is going a lot more smoothly than the uh, relationship between uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, wh- wh- how do you view the situation?
4: I tend to agree with you. I, I think it's a, an interesting dynamic. Um, In this case, it's a very different election than 2016 and and you and certainly I'm sure all of your listeners understand that. In 2016, there was a sense that it would be very easy to beat Donald Trump. Uh, And I think that while there were efforts made to build the coalitions to put everybody together, um, the sense of urgency as regards Trump was different than it is now. Now people really do know that it could happen and they know that they have to come together. So I do think that you're seeing Biden and Sanders work quite hard to cooperate. And you're frankly seeing a number of Sanders supporters step up in big ways to back Biden. Now, there's still going to be tension there because these are ideological camps. There are real divisions here. And um, for Biden, he has a responsibility there. And his responsibility is to communicate clearly to the Sanders supporters and he won't get everybody, not every single person, but he can get the overwhelming majority by communicating clearly that he recognizes the challenge of the moment and that he has to rise to it. Now, there's a few ways that you do that. One, you take stands on particular issues. Uh, I think, frankly, Biden should be uh, should really rethink some of his uh, approaches as regards uh, single-payer Medicare for all. I think that being more open to it uh, creates a, a, a real bridge there. But- Beyond the issues, I do think that who you choose, who you put on your ticket as a running mate, who you talk about putting in your cabinet, who you you know empower as as surrogates and spokespeople, that matters too. And so the Biden campaign has done quite a bit already in this regard with the task forces on issues and things of that nature. But they really do need to ramp it up um, because the fact of the matter is that. Joe Biden's not going to have a. He may get elected president. That may that's doable, but he shouldn't want to just get elected president. He should really be looking for uh, the biggest possible coalition, the biggest possible win, because that the tasks that are going to be handed to him are unimaginable. Nobody nobody you know could have imagined having to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, mass unemployment. Uh, Climate change is still a, a lingering challenge. And then we have the demand that this country finally act on, you know, 400 years of, of racial injustice and as regards policing, but as regards a host of other issues. You put that all that together, that's going to, that's going to require a tremendous level of uh, leadership, and it's also going to require tremendous level of support in the House and Senate to
1: act. Well, that uh, raises another question. Uh, again, our guest in this half hour is uh, John Nichols, author of a new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Uh, according to press reports, uh, Joe Biden has narrowed his vice presidential search to six candidates. Uh, Four of them, African-American. Uh, Val Demings, uh, who is um, a House member of the House of Representatives uh Keisha Lance Bottoms the mayor of Atlanta which uh, has been torn by violence in, over the weekend uh Kamala Harris the senator from California uh and I'm leaving someone out um,
4: there's some people talking about
1: Susan Rice. Susan um, Rice, a yeah. former Obama national security advisor. Mm-hmm. And there are two candidates, other candidates, apparently still in the mix. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, a senator from Massachusetts, uh, and the governor of New Mexico, uh, Governor uh, Grissom. Uh, do you think that if these are the six uh, remaining candidates, uh, any one of these choices could uh uh, add some enthusiasm to the Biden ticket?
4: They all have strengths. Um, and I've, I've interviewed some of them and, and seen them campaign. Uh, I would be cautious. I suspect there are probably a couple more names on the list. I mean, we're getting, we're dealing with leaks here, Brad. So, you know, yeah. it's always, I, I, I think that Elizabeth Warren is probably still, uh, you know, as we, she's probably pretty high on the list of people at least being considered. I I hear a lot of talk about Tammy Baldwin, the senator from Wisconsin, a key swing state also being considered. We we certainly heard about Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan. Um, And and so I I do think there's a a number of folks who are kind of under consideration, and that can shuffle a lot. I've I've covered a lot of vice presidential selection processes over the years, and it's always interesting that sometimes at at an unexpected moment, the person you think is going to be, you know, is really pretty much cleared the field. Comes up with a problem, they get pushed aside, and you end up going another direction. That's how we got Dick Cheney. Um, And (laughs) for the worse. Yeah. Uh, But I would argue that most of these candidates that are being talked about have a lot of strength. My gut instinct tells me that Harris from California is probably uh, in a very strong position right now. Although I'm hearing a lot of talk about Val Demings, and Val Demings is a very interesting prospect because. She is uh, a member of Congress, but before she was a member of Congress, she was in law enforcement. She's done a lot with local government. Uh, She, I think, acquitted herself quite well during the uh, impeachment process, really was one of the leaders and leading spokespeople there. So when you add it all together, uh, I do think they'll probably take a very serious look at her.
1: Yeah, I think she's an interesting possibility because as you should mention, uh, she was the police chief of Orlando, Florida. Uh, she was also uh, one of the uh, House impeachment managers. Uh, so, uh, yeah, she her resume, uh, she did. She was very impressive, I thought, during the impeachment proceedings. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes if uh, Biden's anxious on uh, gaining attention for his choice, a surprise pick uh, who's so well yes. qualified like Demings would be a, uh, a very compelling choice.
3: And Florida, uh, by
4: the way, is a battleground state.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me ask you one last question One last question in the time we have. If it was up to you, what would Joe Biden's 30-second message be?
4: I think his 30-second message would be that uh, when this country is in times of trouble, when we've had really challenging moments, uh, we have historically turned to Democrats. Uh, we turned to Franklin Roosevelt in the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, we turned to John Kennedy at the critical moment as we began the 1960s, a, a very much a new age. Um, and frankly, we turned to Barack Obama in 2008 when, uh, you know, the Republicans had, had driven us into an economic uh, crisis with the, the meltdown. And those Democratic presidents, if you look at their records again and again and again, have done tremendous work. So I think you would, you know, you begin by that core kind of come home to the Democratic Party message. Now I've gone over 30 seconds here. But the last element I would say, though, is that with all that said, um, we have a, a tremendous set of challenges in our, ahead of us, and you just don't want a nut like Donald Trump in charge.
1: John, thank you very much for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, a national correspondent for the nation and the author of the new book, The Battle for the Soul of the Democratic Party. We'll be back after these messages with our provocative, progressive political panel, with Dem List Scott and progressive activist Mark Formaldi. Stay tuned. We'll be back in another whole half hour. half hour as usual two things happen. We have our provocative progressive political panel uh, today with the publisher of Demlis Kimberly Scott and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi and of course we already we always have to start off the half hour a piece of peace of my mind for what it's worth Maybe that should be the title of the segment a piece of my mind for what it's worth. George Floyd's murder on May 25th has been the catalyst for profound changes in public opinion and shifts in popular culture in a short period of time. The most dramatic cultural changes have included dramatic growth and support for Black Lives Matters and a dramatic decision by NASCAR to ban Confederate flags at the races. To top things off, HBO Max booted the classic movie Gone with the Wind off its schedule racist content. Back in 2018, there were more Americans who opposed Black Lives matters, matters than there were who supported the movement. Shortly before Floyd's death, support outweighed opposition by 17% for BLM. Two weeks later, net support grew to 28%. With the fan base anchored deep in the heart of Dixie, Confederate flags are as common as at NASCAR races as angry tweets out of the White House. But last week in a classic when hell freezes over movement, NASCAR announced a ban on uh, rebel flags. In a statement, NASCAR declared, the presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive climate for all fans. The public shock at Floyd's murder and the rampant police brutality has quickly prompted many jurisdictions to take action to reduce the level of violence. Last week, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York signed laws passed by the state legislature that would make police records transparent and end the use of chokeholds. The Louisville City Council passed an ordinance that would ban no-knock search warrants that led to the death of Breonna Taylor, a city emergency medical tech who was killed by police during a search of her home. The District of Columbia City Council voted to ban chokeholds, tear gas, and rubber bullets. A majority of members on the Minneapolis City Council announced they hoped to eliminate the police department completely. Donald Trump's ineffective fight against racism and COVID-19 have crippled his re-election campaign. Last week, the real clear politics average for polls in the presidential race had Joe Biden with a solid 8% lead over Donald Trump. The president's uh, political dissent has sent his campaign team scrambling for a message since it's laughable to argue that America is in great shape after losing more than 115,000 Americans uh, to the COVID pandemic and millions more who have lost their jobs. Last week, a national poll by The Wall Street Journal and NBC News showed that 80% of the country thought things were out of control in this country. Trump's fall from grace is predictable since he failed to win the battle against racial the racial and health pandemics facing the nation. Plus, he has been on the wrong side of public opinion on both fronts. Trump pushed aggressively to reopen the economy while most Americans adopted a cautious attitude. And now we're paying the price with a surge in the virus. Most Americans see the demonstrations in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder as protests, while the president has derided them as riots. Changes in attitudes have left the president and his party behind in the dust, but some Republicans are starting to jump ship. Even with the GOP majority, the Senate Armed Services Committee voted last week to rename bases named after Confederate military figures. Senator James Langford, a conservative Republican representing Oklahoma, called for renaming the military bases Sunday on ABC's This Week. The chokehold that killed George Floyd may become a thing of the past. Some GOP members of Congress, including Langford and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, have called for an end to to the deadly police tactic. The changes in the racial culture of our nation are encouraging, but the real question is whether the recent changes in attitude and culture translate into long-term behavior. Friday, an Atlanta police officer shot and killed an unarmed black man at a Wendy's drive-in. The next day, protesters torch the place. Only time will tell if these seismic shifts in public opinion will read to real shifts in behavior. Until then, the carnage will continue. The body count will grow and Donald Trump will drag his feet in the dirt. Okay, panel. Uh, Let's start with uh, this today. Uh, The... uh, uh, let me start with this on you uh, with uh, on this with you, Kim. Since you follow these things very closely, uh, we're getting very close to the time scheduled for the Democratic National Convention. Uh, are we going to have a real live Democratic convention in Milwaukee, or is it going to go online?
0: Well, at this point, if I were betting, I would say it'd be a hybrid of the two. Um, I know that. The vice president is committed to having some presence in Milwaukee and that the convention team is working very hard to figure out how that can be done safely while prioritizing whatever the health experts say. And you know, with the spike, the second spike uh, in COVID in different states across the country now, we really have no idea what Milwaukee itself will be like, but regardless, delegates would be coming from all over the country. So I think what we're likely to see, um, and I think that we'll know this within the next two weeks, is uh, a series of virtual events, caucuses, and votes, but um, with speeches on a stage, maybe with a balloon drop, but no or limited audience. I think the big question now is if delegates um, and certain officials are going to be able to attend it all.
1: Okay. well, let me ask you uh, the flip side of the question. Uh, The Republicans announced they're going to hold their convention, uh, I guess a traditional convention, in Jacksonville, Florida uh, in August. Uh, Now, I've been to many Democratic conventions, and you've probably been to more than I have. And all sorts of people pressed together in tiny spaces How the Republicans, and they're apparently not going to wear a mask, you know, God bless your pointed little heads, how can they do that without risking serious illness?
0: It's because President Trump, as usual, is thinking about himself first. He wants those stage moments. He wants what normally is excitement, uh, an incredible experience, uh, really uh, without match um, at any convention. Um, Plus when it's televised and you have the normal process of the candidates after each convention usually get a bump in polling but he it's it's why it's in florida you know we've seen how the governor has you know exercised his judgment and handling throughout this cases are spiking in different parts of florida now um so you know, the key will be the visuals for them, but it's at the cost to the American people, and I think they'll limit the number of people. But without masks, it doesn't matter. It just means more in a concentrated area will end up with COVID.
1: Yeah, it looks to me like it's a very risky proposition, but uh, you know, um, you know, I have very little control over Democrats, and I have absolutely none over the Republicans, so uh, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, we're in our progressive, provocative, progressive political panel. Uh, today, our guest, are Kimberly Scott, who's the publisher of DemList. Uh, also, progressive activist Mark Grimaldi joins us in the panel. Uh We are going to... Uh, Mark, let me ask you a quick question. What do you think of the Republican convention plans?
3: You know, I think that it's irresponsible is an understatement because it would be one thing if you were attracting people who statistically seem to social distance at events like this and wear masks, but... You know, we have plenty of polling asking Trump supporters if they wear masks or if they social distance, but they don't. And Trump himself hardly ever wears a mask, and they're going to be, you know, crowding in tight. So I think it's basically, you know, risking these people's lives for his own self gratification.
1: Yeah, I think that's a key word, self-gratification. Okay, we're going to break now. For
3: our listeners,
1: uh, our Twitter viewers will still be here during the break. Uh, But we'll be back with our positive, progressive political panel with DemLift publisher, Kimberly Scott, and progressive activist, Mark Maldon. Okay, we're back with more of Midline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, We are having our... Provocative Progressive Political Panel. Uh, Today on the panel, the publisher of DemList, Kimberly Scott. Uh, By the way, if you want to check out DemList, the uh, Twitter handle is The DemList. Also on the panel is our good friend and uh, political activist Mark uh, Grimaldi, and his Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's uh, G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Let's talk about the vice presidential sweepstakes. Uh, Kim, uh, according to press reports, uh, Joe Biden has narrowed his VP search down to six candidates. Uh, California Senator Kamala Harris, uh, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, uh, Representative Val Demings of Florida, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Uh, Also on the list uh, are uh, the governor of New Mexico, uh, Governor Grissom, uh, and Massachusetts Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, We had John Nichols from the nation on in the first uh, half hour. And he said he thinks there are two other candidates that are still possibilities. Uh, Tammy Baldwin, uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin uh and uh, uh uh Michigan governor uh Whitmer uh who do you think would do Biden the most good uh you wrote a column on this last week actually in Demolist.
0: yes which can be found on my site at demolist.com. i don't know that it's so much about what will who will do the best for biden as what the public feels right now so we knew march 15th debate he announced that he was going to pick a woman as number 2 um, and after his March 29th win in South Carolina, which was delivered by African Americans, the pressure to pick a African American woman started to increase. But then, under the after the tragic events of uh, and the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent three weeks ago and the subsequent unrest and protests, I think that that has uh, the pressure to. An African American woman, woman has increased considerably. Okay. Um, it's interesting that there's a, a poll, Morning Concept poll, that came out uh, last week that said 29% of voters, general election voters, uh, think that Biden, it's important or somewhat important that Biden pick an African American woman as his number two. That being said, when it came to favorability, Democratic voters, which is what counts, uh, said that Elizabeth Warren had the highest favorability reading uh, ratings at 56 percent, and then it was Harris at 47. Then it fell down considerably after that. I think Warren could bring a lot to the ticket in the sense of well, obviously her policy. You know, just kind of got policy wonk, incredible background, always the smartest person in the room. Um, but bringing in progressives across the country and at, the, at a level of enthusiasm and t- voter turnout that we maybe would like to have seen more in 2016. But Harris, who I think is at the top of most people's um, lists, are, you know, is, uh, brings to the table experience as a former prosecutor, as the state's attorney in, the lar- in, the, in California, the country's largest state, as a U.S. senator, and she's African American. Um, but I think that's also why you see people you wouldn't otherwise, like Val Demings as a congresswoman, or Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is the mayor of Atlanta, uh, mention in the mix now, because that pressure is significant.
1: Okay, Mark, uh, it seems to me that you could make a pretty good argument uh, for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, it seems to me that Warren uh, expertise is... The economy, Uh, she, by training, is a bankruptcy lawyer and teaches bankruptcy law. I did teach bankruptcy law at uh, Harvard University. And so she has an expertise in economic issues. Um, Politically, she might help uh, bring some disillusioned Sanders supporters into the uh, Biden camp. But uh, given what's happened in the last few weeks, uh, starting with the murder of George Floyd, it seems to me there's incredible pressure on Joe Biden to pick pick a black running mate, uh, and my guess is if he doesn't, uh, there will be a political storm. Uh, what do you think?
3: I I would have to agree with you, Brad. I was a I was an early Elizabeth Warren supporter, so I I actually thought she was the best candidate that we could choose um, at this moment. I think she. Um, just does a great job of fighting with, you know, all of her, her, her mental capacity. She's so, when she gets a policy, uh, a, a problem, she can find a policy solution, but it's not, she doesn't get bogged down too much in the wonkiness of it. Although she can get as wonky as you want her to. She cuts right to the real life consequences of what the problem is and how that solution can help make people's lives better. And that's what, Um, Democratic voters are looking for is is solutions. Besides getting rid of Donald Trump, they also want problems solved. They're very disillusioned with the nation right now. Um, So I think she would make a great choice in that sense. But I think many people who are not African-American, it's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes, especially, or someone else's skin in this case. Um, I think they underestimated how... Tired people are of watching their brothers and sisters um, die uh, in the streets, you know, for just just being black and i think that we're seeing it now you know and it and it's not just that issue of the policing it's also that they are uh more severely affected by COVID 19. um they have been hurt by the economic rat, uh, ramifications of that um, more so so i think to have an ally at that high of a position who you know understands how it is because they've walked in those shoes I think it's very powerful, and that's not even taking into account what a huge role African Americans played. And let's face it, uh, Kim and Brad, rescuing Vice President Biden's campaign in South Carolina and that's propelling true, true. him on to being the nominee. Um, I think you know he's going to have a long talk with uh, Jim Clyburn before he chooses anyone, as he said after South Carolina. Um, a very long. Talk. But I also think it would excite. It would excite America. To have that. I know I would be excited, um, and for personal reasons as well. You know, I have uh, my niece and nephew are uh, African American, and when I see them, um, You know, grow up, and they're 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 of the age where they're not walking around outside by themselves. But my nephew's getting close, and and I am thinking of it. We all know someone, but when you start to really look at it in real terms like that about people you love, and it becomes personal, you start to just get a little bit of a feeling of of what it's like. And for those of our our viewers and listeners. Who are following this show? Who are African American? You know, I'm, I'm sure everyone. When you ask them, everyone's got a story that they've been through, and it's you know, many of many people have multiple stories about things that they've had to go through that other people who are not of people of color can't even imagine. So I'm glad to see the diversity uh, of the protesters. I think it's a that is a reflection of what America is, not of what Donald Trump has been showing us, and I think that. That choice can be reflected in Vice President Biden's nominee. Um, And I do agree with what Kim said. I think Vice President Biden is going to be very hard-pressed not to pick a person of color. And specifically with uh, how much of women make up the current uh, Democratic Party, I think a woman of color. Um, I, I think it would be a very difficult decision not to do so at this point, to be honest.
1: Okay, Uh, Kim, let me ask you a quick question in the time that we have left. Uh, I talked in my editorial about the profound changes that have occurred in a short time, uh, since, uh, George Floyd's murder. Uh, do you think the change, the changes we've seen, the shifts in behavior uh, over a racial issue uh is are things going to change over the long term or are we just going through a uh, you know a bump where people are concerned about racial issues now but it will drop off uh in a couple of months
0: i hope there's that change i mean in the same way that we we must face that w- the world will not be the same after COVID is over hopefully when it's over uh you know the unprecedented uh, events of the last several several weeks, and it's not just George Floyd. It continues to happen. You know, as we've witnessed even by today, uh, represent the frustration of people that, and I think also, you know, as Mark said, I mean, to be able to see this, people are more and more seeing through the eyes of minorities and. Um, if you haven't experienced yourself as a minority, you've at least Well,
1: Kim, I certainly uh, hope you're right because uh, the nation's got to change or we in, a- in troubled times. Uh, thanks. That's all for today, folks. Thanks to my guests, John Dickinson, from The Nation, Kim Scott of Demolist, and progressive political activist Mark Maldi. I'm here every Monday at 3
2: p.m. Eastern time at the largest willing in the Creek. Rise. At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now buy any three cooler beverages and get 500 bonus Speedy Rewards points. At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now buy any three cooler beverages and get 500 bonus Speedy Rewards points.